0: Hello and welcome to The Natural Evolution, produced by Rebel Health Tribe, a radio show focused on providing you with inspiration, education, and tools for true healing and transformation. I'm Michael, and I'll be your guide on this adventure as together we explore the very nature of the healing journey. And we're live here with Dr. Nasha Winters. Dr. Winters, thank you for joining us.
1: Absolute pleasure, Michael. Thank you.
0: Dr. Naisha Winters is a global healthcare authority and best-selling author in integrative cancer care and research consulting with physicians around the world. She's educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating vetted integrative therapies in cancer care to enhance outcomes. Dr. Winters is currently focused on opening a comprehensive metabolic oncology hospital and research institute In the US, where the best that standard of care has to offer and the most advanced integrative therapies will be offered. This facility will be in a residential setting on a gorgeous campus against a backdrop of regenerative farming. EMF mitigation and retreat and I hope that you'll let people who don't have cancer visit your campus because that sounds awesome and I don't want to generate cancer, so that I can go there.
1: We have a wellness arm as well. You don't have to have the big key to come visit us. (laughs)
0: Cool. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I can already tell. We just had a really fun discussion before we came on air, which is usually a good sign. Um, This is actually the first time that we've met or done anything together. So I'm excited about it. I've watched several of your presentations and um, I love your work and I love everything you're doing. So this is an honor to have you here and I'm really humbled and excited. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I can't wait to dive in because you've got some cool things on the horizon. And I feel, um, I don't know, I just feel honored that we get to have this conversation. And, and I feel honored that I get to watch what you're birthing right now. So, pretty cool.
0: Cool. Well, thank you. And um, I guess let's just jump right in. So, my first question, if the person I'm talking to is a doctor so far, has been Did you want to be a doctor when you grew up?
1: So I did sort of, I mean, that's what's sort of strange is my mom said, I was always taking care of all the little animals in the neighborhood and mm. I would line up all my stuffed animals on my bed and give them medicine and sort of, t- and she said it was a really close tie. I, w- I either wanted to be a doctor or a bank teller. Those were the two things I had run in, um, in my, in my yeah, I did. I had a, a definite affinity to healthcare, worked as a nanny, um, all through high school, um, you know, worked with little kids, some kids with developmental and, um, disability issues. So I was really kind of involved in their health care as well. And all the way through college, my first job, real job outside of hot dog on a stick, which is another story at another time, um, was working in a nursing home. Actually, I became a certified nursing assistant um, right when I started college, summer before I started college. Um, I also was a certified addictions counselor for many years. So I was you know, right out of high school, right into the healthcare world while I was doing my pre-med.
0: So you started pre-med in school. Uh, In college, you were pre-med and that didn't go on for very long before things went sideways. Right. I believe you were 19.
1: Yeah. So it was
0: sophomore year.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was my sophomore year. And, and really things have been going sideways for so long that I didn't know that it was sideways. Mm. If that makes sense? When you, when you inhabit a body that doesn't know what wellness is on any level, you sort of adapt. You just become like accustomed to the aches and pains and the digestive woes and the skin conditions and the hormonal and the period stuff and all the things. And it just becomes your normal. Like when they told my mom when I was a a toddler, they said, you know, her pooping once a month is just normal because if she poops once a month, that's just her schedule. That's the sort of BS that we're taught to believe is that somehow what we get accustomed to is somehow normal. So that kind of is the preclude to the fact that I went good six, seven months landing in and out of the ER every month, sometimes a couple of times a month before they figured out what was really going on with me, because it was this long track record of, Oh, maybe it's her IBS or maybe it's her polycystic or her endometriosis or her anxiety or blah, 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 you know, whatever it was just kept kind of getting written off. Um, And another script sent to me and knocked out the door until I showed up one night, um, a friend drove me, rushed me to the hospital. I couldn't breathe. I looked nine months pregnant. Um, I'd already been losing all this weight, but I kept getting fatter and fatter. Didn't understand what that was at the time. I do now. Um, by the time I got there, my oxygen levels were in the 70s. I was unable to keep anything down. I hadn't had a bowel movement in many weeks. I had excruciating abdominal pain. Uh, my organs, when they ran the labs, I was in organ failure. By the time they did a scan in the um, ER, they realized I had a huge mass on my right ovary and lesions all throughout my peritoneal cavity and lesions on my liver and a bowel obstruction. I was 19, it was just shy of my 20th birthday on the end of September baby. So it was my sophomore year in college, just shy of my 20th birthday. It would still take another couple of weeks before the official diagnosis came in. They knew it was cancer the fluid, um, the ascites fluid that they were pulling was malignant. They knew all of that, but it still took, this is back in 1991. So it still took time to get the pathology back. Um, And we didn't have the type of testing and the type of buckets that this type of cancer landed in that we know of today. But finally, when it was all said and done, what had been missed for many months and that I'd had issues with for many years was officially a diagnosis of in-stage, stage four ovarian cancer. Um, which was also a zebra at that time. And by a zebra, I mean, not common to see a 19 year old with uh, terminal cancer in general and ovarian cancer in particular.
0: Wow. So you (laughs) grew up kind of feeling like hell most of the time and, and having various like whack-a-mole type symptoms. And so feeling good was never really something you were even familiar with. So you didn't realize I don't feel good. It was just kind of, this is how my body is this is what life is for me, until the physical symptoms you couldn't ignore drove you to go to the hospital. And did they, when you were at the hospital like that day, is that when you got all that information?
1: Yeah, it was about 7 p.m. I think when I arrived at the ER and I didn't finally get fully seen and uh, all the scans and all the blood test results back until early morning hours the next day. Um, and that was when the physician on call basically came in unable to barely look me in the eye, really shaky, very distraught, um, I would later find out within that conversation that he had a daughter my age. So I think that was what the trigger was for him as well. Um, But he told me, so we know it's cancer. We suspect that it's an origin of your ovary. We don't have that data back yet. It can take us a few weeks to get those results, but you're so sick. Your organs are in such failure. My liver was shutting down. My kidneys were shutting down. I had fluid build up my abdomen around my heart in my lungs. Um, One round of chemo he said would outright kill me. And he was also concerned about pulling too much fluid out of my abdomen, which he knew would give me some relief. But he also thought that the level of a a cachexia, which was a malnourishment process that I had going on at that time, my muscles were completely broken down. He was concerned that if he pulled too much fluid too quickly, that would also put me into heart failure. Um, And so it was just this kind of a catch twenty two that I was sort of damned if I did and damned if I didn't on any level. And so it was just sort of that moment of being told that, just that level of shock and disbelief. You know, what one of the things I think that you touched me so much before we even got onto this call today is honestly up until that point, Michael, I had spent a good decade of my life. So really at a young age, between age nine and 10, I started to really not want to be on this planet and had actually um I think kind of given up at a very young age. Now people on the outside world would not have known that because I was always my mask was immense. Right. I could be really out there in the world. I mean, you know, oh, student president yeah, and You know, you know, like on my volleyball team, and you know, just all the things—the
0: mask of extroversion,
1: full on the mask of extroversion, and and the mask of like, don't look too closely, don't get too close. And so it was definitely this place of a survival process. But I didn't want to be here. And at the moment I was given the diagnosis that I wouldn't be for much longer. It did something really dramatic for me, and that was it lit the pilot light of this innate desire and will to live that I don't think I'd ever known really well before that either.
0: That's interesting that it wasn't until they told you, you weren't going to be able to, that you even wanted to. Yeah. And yeah. so where your was your family there with you? Like what? Um, yeah. Were you, oh, you were at school.
1: Yep. I was off at college. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go travel, to school? Well, Fort Lewis college in Durango, Colorado. Oh,
0: was- now you got tiny. a house there.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> still my home base today, all these yeah. years later, which is quite ironic, but no, I'd actually been quite estranged from my family
0: Okay.
1: in that year previous. I had also um, was estranged from a lot of my friendships, a relationship had come to an end back in the spring. So I was really entirely alone. And again, no one in the outside world would ever expect that I worked full-time, several full-time jobs. Actually, I had a huge full pre-med schedule taking more hours than the usual. Cause that was just my MO. And so I was able to just sort of compensate and distract from life with all the things I took on in my life. And it was just very interesting time. And the, the guy I started dating at that time, right? I mean, we weren't even dating. We were friends. We were in a lot of classes together. We hung out. We had a lovely camaraderie. We had a really nice connection with each other. There was nothing else romantic as far as I was concerned at that time, but he became my confidant. Um, that man to this day, 30 years later is my husband, ironically. That was the craziest time I as I was really alone. And the only other person who knew what was going on entirely was my then Good friend, now husband, and a few of my professors up at the college, and of course a few doctors in my community. That was it.
0: Uh, Talk about a test to put a new guy through. (laughs) I know,
1: crazy. I don't know if you. I did just get diagnosed
0: with terminal cancer. Are you in? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a that's a solid screening uh, capability there. So, wow, that must have been pretty terrifying. Yeah. And did so? They said no chemo.
1: Yeah.
0: No taking the fluid out, which. I actually just learned about that yesterday. Our cat has a cancer diagnosis and yesterday started bloating up like a basketball. And um, we thought she was just really constipated or something. And then they ran the ultrasound and it's fluid. And then I asked my wife, she was the one at the vet. And I said, well, can they drain the fluid? And she said, the vet said he could, but that she doesn't seem really uncomfortable right now. And that pulling the fluid out will change the physiology and all of that. And it could cause more harm than good. So they said no chemo because right. uh, your organ failure was too advanced. So I guess, where do you even go from that? Like what, what is okay. <laughs> step one? You just go home and have a coffee and be like, okay. Uh, like what yeah. was your mental process there that morning when you
1: It's weird when I think about it, it's like watching a really strange movie. I will say that even though I've tapped in and I've gone into the street, you know, I've done a lot of work and a lot of trauma release and things. I'm so far removed from it now because it's almost three decades later. And Mm -hmm. what I know today is so different than what I knew five years ago, 10 Mm -hmm. years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that it's almost hard because I'm so not the same person. I'm not in the same situation. You know, we're all these dynamic beings. But what I distinctly remember was just this level of, there was the first phase was when he told me there was a moment of relief. That was my first feeling. I remember that moment of like, oh good, here's your, here's your exit strategy that you've been longing for for so long. And then almost the second I acknowledged that and tried to embrace that, the next feeling was, oh hell no, this is not happening. This isn't how it ends. Um, and the other side of me was like, I don't want to die, right? Right. And so that was the next phase and all this is happening in rapid fire, literally sitting there in my gown. They did pull a little bit of fluid, about a half a liter of fluid in the hospital. Cause I was incredibly uncomfortable, monitored me for many hours to make sure it didn't put me into cardiac arrest and basically sent me home with narcotics, uh, which was a really bad idea. What I know now as a doctor, bad idea with someone with a bowel blockage to give them a narcotic, which yeah. freezes their them right up. Yeah. Right. But they were like, here we go. They wanted to keep me in, but I had no insurance. I had no money. So I released myself against medical advice um, because there was nothing they were going to do except for just keep me hooked up to machinery and basically keep me narcotic out. And then they basically gave me the name of hospice care, which wasn't hospice. Then it was just palliative in our community and a name of a local oncologist and to, to touch basis. it was on a weekend. So it was like over the weekend that all hell broke loose in my body. So the next phase was after like leaving the hospital was one of anger, which was very interesting for me. I'm a redhead. Anger is not a difficult emotion for me to engage with. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty passionate, fiery energy, but the anger that I felt was just all consuming. But it was this anger that basically said, okay, if I'm going to die, because I had no belief that I would live and I had no belief that I would somehow cure it or, you know, change it. I wanted to understand why. I wanted to understand why. So, curiosity is what was sparked in the anger, which is what led me to my local library, which is what led me to a book by this guy that nobody knew of back then, Deepak Chopra, a book called Quantum Healing. Now, how ironic. He's like a household name today. But in 1991, he was not. And in small town Podunk Durango, Colorado, there was nothing. And so, that's where within the next week, um, between leaving the hospital that night, going to the library that next day that I could, because it was like a Friday night, Saturday, I went to the library. I was super sick, super weak. Um, the Monday I had the meeting with the oncologist who basically said the same thing, like you're too ill to do anything. Even with treatment, we're looking at three months. Um, they still hadn't had all my final results yet. She said, if, if I see anything different when those come in, I'll let you know it would take until the 21st of October of 1991 for those results to come in. That was almost, it almost took three and a half full weeks to get those results, by the way. Um, which, which was like I, a
0: third of the time of the life expectancy that they gave exactly, you. Don't
1: exactly. Don't worry
0: or anything. Just totally. dying and over I, here.
1: Exactly. But that's exactly <laughs> it. it is like, I literally don't think anybody expected me to live to even get the diagnosis. And it was, it was just the time and place. We weren't getting those things back quickly. I was going in weekly to have my abdomen drained over a period of almost a month. I had over eight and a half liters of fluid pulled from my abdomen. Um, exactly. It was incredible. I couldn't eat or drink anything except for tiny sips of water because I still had the bowel blockage. Nothing was going out, nothing was going in. So I, in essence, accidentally, fasted for two and a half months, um, which is probably what saved my life Uh, really fast forwarding to what we know today and the, the literature out there, Mm -hmm. but that total bowel blockage was allowing my body to focus all of its resources on healing versus digesting. So that was kind of an, an accident waiting to happen. And in that time, because I was pre-med because I had a curious brain, because I was exploring what was going on. Once my belly came down, I looked like a pretty normal person, albeit quite skinny, but I could function. Um, And my pain was managed with ibuprofen and Tylenol. I couldn't do narcotics. And so I was able to kind of stumble through the next couple of months while I started looking exploring the why I was where I was. And so what was interesting is, this is towards the end of the semester. And I decided going into the next school year, the next semester, that I would go from a biology chemistry major to a biology psychology major because something in me knew that where I came from, my biography was very, very much related to my biology. Mm -hmm. And I got very curious about that in this time as well. And I think these kind of strange accidents and these strange timings were not so strange and not so accidental. And so it was just the beginning of what has been a pretty incredible 30-year journey.
0: That's pretty crazy. (laughs) Uh And incredible. I I'm impressed that you were able to focus anything to be able to read, to study. Like, um, I haven't been through a health crisis like that personally. My wife has multiple autoimmune conditions in the last four years. We've been through three flares, uh, that are pretty severe. Hers is like excruciating full body pain when it's on. And when it's like that, and I'm trying to like function Mm -hmm. and read stuff and learn things and do all the things, uh, It's very hard to focus and concentrate. I guess it depends on your stress response. You could go into like a fight response, which would get you super focused. I freeze, like freeze is my go-to stress response. So then everything glazes over and it's like this fog. And all I want to do is learn all the things, but all I can do is sit there like this. And so it's, um, yeah, that's impressive nonetheless, like that you were even able to start reading and that I was trying, while you were talking, trying to figure out like, how did she actually, why did she not die? And it had to be the fasting. Like that would be a major contributor because what it does to your immune system and apoptosis and all the things like now that we know what we know about fasting and we're not telling you not to eat for two and a half months if you're listening to this, but like as advanced as it was, and as serious as it was, and as doing no treatments that you were, And you weren't into like naturopathic type stuff then, right? Like you weren't all of a sudden being like, oh, I need to do this and this and this. It was like, I can't eat because my bowels are blocked. So I'm not going to eat and I need to understand this. So I'm going to read these books and then two months go by and you're alive and the fluid's gone. And then did you explore treatment then? Or what was the next step? Plus the anger. Oh, the anger.
1: The anger was huge.
0: Unsuppressed anger. Because it sounds like you—you you, you were probably pretty ragey. Would probably be a word to describe it.
1: The pork of a lot of pent-up mm-hmm. emotion, a lot of pent-up experiences, and, and like voice,
0: big,
1: big time, big yeah. time. Since then, I've—I've I've also studied Chinese medicine, and mm. in Chinese medicine, anger we reframe it as not a negative emotion, but one that is the will to become. That's how it's described in Chinese medicine. And so again, it would still take me years before I was even in that type of educational environment to learn that, but somehow the anger was mobilizing and felt good to me. Okay. So there was that side. When you talked about the clarity and what was coming in, I was super, you know, like always hyper motivated. My survival of what I came from, of the trauma and the background I had was to be overly academic, to be overly intellectual, to be overly uh, accomplished. Like that was my survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. That's how I got through it. So it was already well honed skill for me. It just got even more so in that time. And so I, I want your listeners to know, it's like, again, there was no thoughtful methodology, like I'm going to fast. I'm going to do this. I just wanted to learn and understand and so that's when I started stumbling upon the work of people like Dr. Otto Warburg. And I started, cause I was studying pre-med. I was in physiology,
0: I was in anatomy. This was pH in yeah. cancer, right?
1: Exactly. And like yeah. the mitochondria, the heart and soul of this, the mm-hmm. metabolic fuel system that wasn't really a DNA problem. It was a mitochondrial problem. And I was learning in my studies that it was a DNA problem, you know. but it wasn't quite like, it didn't feel like that was still enough. I was also working in a, an addiction center And I came from a long line of of pretty hardcore uh, addiction in my family of origin um, and trauma and abuse of all kinds. And so part of me working in that environment was to also work out all of my experiences that I had before. We often
0: teach what we need to learn.
1: Absolutely. And I was in my abnormal psych classes at the time. And um, my professor was just enlightening me and all these things I was learning about my family of origin, understanding I had a brother who's a sociopath. I had, you know, addiction, major addictions in my father, a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of, I mean, just physical, emotional trauma. There was so much there, so much there that I knew I had to keep unpacking that. And here's another crazy moment. At that time, when I came back in January of 1992, we had a therapist in our school. In our school, we had a woman who just completed her training in EMDR. Oh, cool. 1992. I was her first. I don't even know
0: it existed in 92. I thought it was newer than that. EMDR is a trauma therapy for people who don't know.
1: Yeah, a rapid eye movement trauma therapy, which was really powerful. I also stumbled across an amazing acupuncturist in my town who had been an RN before. And in her second career later in life became an acupuncturist who also was very medically trained. So she was very good to help monitor and support me. But she also was able to offer me the pain management and the digestive support, which was a game changer. And then I was doing my my senior thesis at a local health clinic where I was able to get my scans, my ultrasounds, my Mm CA-125, my other blood tests done at the time just to monitor my case. So that fast forwards to what were they offering me at that time?
0: Hey, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you head over to rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit. That's K I T and grab the RHT Starter Kit, which includes a sampler of four free videos from our professional master classes and webinars, the RHT Healthy Sleep Guide, the Wellness Vault coupon book, which will save you money on all of our favorite health-related tools and resources, a professional product guide, and a coupon for 15% off your first order in our shop. That's rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit, K-I-T, and you'll get all that delivered right away. Also, if you're on Facebook, We've got a fun, engaging, and supportive group over there as well with thousands of health seekers just like yourself. Just search for Rebel Health Tribe and you'll find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. So you didn't do surgery, you didn't do chemo, you didn't do radiation?
1: By the time I was still here, three, four months after my proposed expiration date, I wasn't feeling good.
0: So the oncologist was probably pretty confused if you called her again
1: even return my call. This was a very interesting time for me. So I also realized at that time that um, I went into a very, I hate standard of care um, for a period of time. So I just want your listeners to know that, that I've come through that as well, through the eye of that needle, but it was a good decade in there that really tainted how I felt about standard of care medicine because I was so discarded. I had been ignored or placated to, or even told I was a histrionic female who was just drug seeking for many months leading up to my diagnosis, despite my desperation to find out what was wrong. And by the time they did find out what was wrong, they basically said, I'm so sorry, there's nothing we can do. And by the time I was alive longer than they thought I would be, then no one wanted to even talk to me because they did not know what to do with me. That's the only thing I can figure to this day
0: you don't fit like you don't make sense to them and to their model and like it just doesn't it must have been a faulty diagnosis or the you know there's all kinds of stories that because it shatters the worldview like they have to maintain their worldview of this is impossible this is how you fix this and she didn't do this so it can't be fixed so it must have been wrong so let's just that doesn't exist
1: exactly (laughs) Exactly. it's
0: literally like child with the hands over the ears
1: it was a very strange time for me. It sounds what like you-, you
0: found some amazing people like on accident. Kind of.
1: It just started kind of landing in my, in my path.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: was very interesting. Um, what you described just resonated so much. You said, you know, it's like, they didn't know what to do with you. You didn't fit their model, their expectation. You ro- shook up their worldview. Here's the craziest part about me and my personality. That was always who I was. My mom tells me I was like that as a little girl, like all the different things. And suddenly, I think that's part of why I had that emotional, like lack of wanting to be on this planet because I didn't fit in anywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I put on all of the, it's like, I'm going to fit in here. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be this to everybody. Yeah, Chameleon. Right? Yeah. Completely in. And then inside I was completely out. And so for me, what happened with the diagnosis is it like switched that it made me want to be completely out but inside I was completely in, in a very different way. And so it was about really renegotiating all of my belief systems, all of them. It was about me like figuring out, okay, well, if I'm going to go, I want to understand why I want to be in this different place. I want to have choice in what I'm doing. I want to be personally engaged in this process. I feel like what I did in six months, most people don't do in a lifetime of therapy, you know, or of work like that. And so it was just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fascinating. And then one little piece that I actually did not let this part of my story out for many years, but I think after Michael Pollan's book, um, how to change your mind, I feel a little bit more comfortable talking about this because there is stigma around it. But my then good friend who's now my husband introduced me to psilocybin, Mm -hmm. um, the night of my 20th birthday. So this is a full, maybe two weeks after my hospitalization, So I think I was in the hospital on the 16th. And so I didn't tell him, I didn't tell anybody what was going on with me. And I thought, well, I've never done a drug in my life. I'm the good girl. I'm the hyper-responsible. Screw it. Tonight's the night. That's an interesting
0: one to start on.
1: Had I known none of these things are accidents, you guys. But what it was so funny is I didn't know. So when they handed me the baggie, I thought I was supposed to eat the whole baggie. So if anybody is out there listening, uh, something called a heroic dose is a dose over nine grams. What I best can figure today is I took about 20 grams of psilocybin.
0: That's a lot.
1: That's a lot on a fasted body that I hadn't been eating for over two weeks at that time.
0: Did it end that? Did it end your blockage?
1: It ended a lot of things. I went through a death and dying process. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that's enough to do that.
1: Yeah. and uh-huh. and the person who got me through it and coached me through it and supported me through it as they realized what i had done and were like probably all terrified that these college guys were all end up in jail or something you know the, my then boyfriend now husband basically became my guide through that process and kept me firmly rooted on this planet now that i know cuz i've had 11 patients go through clinical trials of psilocybin for end of life care all of them are still here <laughs> i think that, that again that's, that's Is that through it was. Johns
0: Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. So good.
1: that was through Hopkins. They all did their trial. That was like 2011, 2012, 2013. So it'd still be another 20 years.
0: Yeah, before so was that really was like in a reasonably acceptable kind of. Yeah.
1: And even yeah. then I was very careful when I encouraged these, all of them were stage four ovarian cancer patient women. When I encouraged them, I said, you know, I had an experience. i was still very, very careful about what I shared of my personal experience. And I was like, but you know, I found that it was very helpful in me um, connecting with myself in a way that I'd never done before. And then to hear their stories afterwards and them talking about it and writing about it and being written up in the clinical journals and whatnot, is just absolutely fascinating to me, especially one who she also was incredibly suicidal throughout her whole process. She The only reason that she wanted to live is she had a little girl um, that she had worked so hard to get through IVF and then through adoption and the whole bit. And so for her, she knew she needed to live. Like her responsibility was to live for that little girl, despite that she'd already been through like shock treatments, every drug you can imagine. And it wasn't until her clinical experience with Johns Hopkins and psilocybin for end-of-life care for her stage four ovarian cancer diagnosis, that she finally broke through that. And she has been in remission ever since her daughter is like grown and married. Now, I mean, this is like incredibly amazing. And so to mm-hmm. hear and see stories that repeated similar findings to my own, again, this is not saying everyone ran out and do a heroic dose of mushrooms. That wasn't it, but I wanted to be very transparent with your audience and that it's never one thing. It's never one experience. I'm still on this journey learning. Those were just some very interesting things that aligned in my path that I did not seek knowingly at least, and that, um, I didn't have the data for, or the desire or the intellect for. And in many ways, I feel like it's harder to be a cancer patient today than it was back then, because I didn't have a Dr. Google, you know, I didn't have hundreds of well-meaning people, you know, offering me their advice about what their aunt, you know, Josephine did. I read about
0: this one guy who knew this other guy who did this one thing that took this thing and yeah.
1: My privacy of it, my inability to go finding information Mm. on it, the Western medical closing the door to me saying, ain't nothing we can do. There was no internet. What
0: what did you do? (laughs) Because there's a lot of analysis paralysis now. Like it's, I've run into it with, with Mira's autoimmunity where like I have 27,000 things I could read in one day. But it sounds like you were really trusting your own intuition when it came to a lot of these things and to these people and to this. And for full transparency, it's a psychedelic experience that flipped my suicidal depression as well. So um, I don't think I've taken 20 grams of mushrooms before, but psychedelics were part of my life, pretty much my whole life. And I'd always stayed away from them, actually, when I was in a really bad Mental place because I was scared of like where it would go because you don't really get to decide where it goes. And um, it was kind of a desperation. I've tried everything else and I'm going to just try this. And by morning, it was like my black and white was color. And I've, I've learned since that it wasn't necessarily what the medicine itself did, it was an experience or two and a conversation or two and a realization or two that I had. In the night like through the course of the experience that i wouldn't have otherwise been open to that shifted something in me that was really profound yes they there's all the physiology and the things that they do in the brain as well but looking back on it it wasn't the substance it was the thing that happened because of the substance or more likely to happen because of the substance but yeah so you don't have to feel like you're the weird one dropping the the truth bombs on the podcast that was my that was my way to get through as well and something i've studied quite a bit and i'm really well connected to a lot of people within the, the maps community my own therapist helped them design their trials for mdma and um catherine McLean was one of the lead researchers at johns hopkins and i know her She since left academia but uh, yeah. She was involved there, and I've met some of those people too. And the, the studies they've done at Hopkins are like, if it was anything else, it already would exist like on the shelves I at the drugstore because the study, the results are absurd. I think it's like a ninety percent drop in in depression and anxiety amongst the terminal patients because they they give it to them for like existential dread, basically. Like, and yeah. and then they accidentally get better.
1: Yeah, I had <laughs> six patients go through that that are all accidentally still here
0: from terminal diagnoses. Diagnosis. Yeah. And we're not telling you that psychedelic mushrooms cure cancer either. So don't, oh, I know no. when you're dealing with cancer, exactly. we have to be like, say okay. that re- repetitively.
1: Exactly. Well, and I love how, what you described a moment ago was that these medicines we've co-evolved with them mm-hmm. since the beginning of time. And what they do is they don't do anything to us. They're like the locking key that opens up and allows you to go like, take a peek in a place and access. Yeah information that is already part of you mm-hmm. or hear information that has been trying to be imparted on you for some time that you were not able to otherwise hear or connect with yeah. that. And, and just to take this another step in, in cancer, what I've learned since from everything from Ayurveda to Chinese medicine, to shamanism, to even standard of care, all the way down to its, um, you know, down to the tumor microenvironment, environment, et cetera, is that cancer is simply a disconnect, Okay, it's just a disconnect from self, from other, from community, from culture, from God. It's that's all it is, and and down to the cellular level, from cell to cell communication, intracellular communication, metabolic communication, and metabolic signaling pathways. So you can go very macro, you can go very micro, you can go very esoteric, you can go very literal.
0: Okay, and you mentioned you had a number of estrangements right before then as uh, well, and a number of ending of relationships and enough like. Yeah. Um, a lot of disconnect, a lot of isolation.
1: Yeah. But the craziest part, the relationships for me were the ones that actually kept me more and more isolated and cutting them away. Looking back on it now, always right. 2020 past vision here, but I feel like that was actually the beginning of my healing was the cutting away of a lot of those relationships and that the cancer was just like the purging the expression of all that was bottled up you know, from that, and that it would just continue to ooze. There was plenty to keep oozing for a long period of time. And, and still, you know, to this day, it's incredible how much we can embody of trauma and not even just our own, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people don't even realize how empathic they are and how much they take on, you know, they always say that we are the sum of the people closest Mm -hmm. to us. And so for me, for a long period of time, the people closest to me were not very healthy, thoughtful yeah. people.
0: Intergenerational and, uh, on a number of levels too. It's yeah. like the actual genetics. Yes. Cause they found that mice, like, I don't remember how many generations it is, but their DNA 12 generations altered from traumatic experiences. So that's probably about 300 years in human generations at least. And then there's the intergenerational aspect of the way that the trauma manifests is passed down in generation to generation too via addiction, abuse, even beliefs and mindset and like uh, yeah. things. And it's um, it's not all yours. There's a book that didn't start with you, yeah, uh, Thomas Hubel, I believe. Yeah. Or it's excellent. So good. Yeah. And
1: yeah. that you know, this is it, it. Gets a little esoteric and out there for people, but for me, for my experience, and for the thousands of patients I've had the privilege of working with. We always go here. We always dig into this terrain. Eventually we may not start there. People like to hit the tangibles first, yeah. um, but we typically end up there at some point because it, it does tend to be quite a huge obstacle to cure. And for me, in some ways being told there is no way was exactly the way. Right. And it kind of
0: takes the pressure off too. It's like, okay. I can't succeed here. So might as well just, just do what I want, like at my own yeah. pace.
1: It was for me, that was the place is just the curiosity. And the funniest thing is you'd think after a certain period of time, I would just get more like, Oh, okay, I've learned enough. And I'll just stop. Every time I ask another question, it brings me up 10 more, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, if I feel like I've answered this 10 more questions come on its heels. So it's a constant. I mean, that's where it's so amazing now is to have survived this long and be able to see all the cool things we've learned in medicine in general, in healthcare in general, and cancer in particular, to look back and go. Well, that explains it now, or, oh, I totally understand. Like it wouldn't be till 1996 that I learned of my BRCA status, right? The BRCA um, uh, methylation DNA repair gene hiccup that is of my family of origin. That would be another five years into my diagnosis. It wouldn't be another 10 years beyond that, that I learned of my epigenetics. And then I started to understand why I am the person who, when I'm met with stress, I dive in, I go into action. Whereas my husband, like you, goes into paralysis. And so I've got excess dopamine. I have um slow calm tea, you know, lots of SNPs in this department, which basically means I can use st- um, stress like my superpower.
0: Mm. Right? And I have low dopamine and stress shuts me down.
1: See, and yeah. that's just, and that's the thing is mm-hmm. we are all wired differently. So I started to understand my strengths and weaknesses. Um, and knew how to sort of manipulate them for myself. I keep learning things. I love when, you know, when I switched my major over to biology and psychology, I ran across the work of Robert Ader, of Candace Pert, of Bruce Lipton. These are the early days of what we were coining um, psychoneuroimmunology. So I basically created an undergraduate degree in psychoneuroimmunology. So that became, and this was 1992, I wonder if it, those it, exist
0: now. Like you can choose it as a degree track probably.
1: Good question. I don't even know. I haven't even gone to look at that. We should yeah. because I'm sure it exists, you know, as yeah. a track. But not so. then at all.
0: Like those people were lunatics. Bruce Lipton was shunned as a, as a madman, like a charlatan lunatic. So was Gabor Monte. So was like anyone who was talking about these things 25 years ago was like, this oh. is total quackery nonsense.
1: Well, I've been like labeled the duck, the quack, the charlatan my entire life, even before I got sick, you know, it's like, I've always kind of gone against the stream because mm-hmm. I just yeah. well, and
0: Because our stream is bullshit too. So <laughs> that's a pretty easy, you know, it's like, God, that's not a good stream to be in. But uh, no, I, Bruce Lipton, I, I listened to some interview of his early on in my, probably about 13 years ago when I first started getting into health stuff. And I was like, this can't be true. Like, this can't be real. Like, is this guy legit? And then he has how many PhDs and whatever else? And I'm like, what, 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 why isn't anyone else talking about it? If this is a thing, why isn't this everywhere or everything? It's because there's no pill for it.
1: And this is what's so hard is, you know, then I start to get coined as like the tinfoil hat wearing lady or the conspiracy theorist. But you guys have to remember my then boyfriend, he was also pre-med, but mm. he went grad school track. He was a cancer drug design in grad school. He's a biochemist. He's one of the most brilliant human beings you'll ever meet. He teaches physicians.
0: Very left to- brain, very rational, very scientific.
1: I needed that in my yeah. balancing act here. Mm. Um, but it's like he worked for Merck for years, like trying to uh, like have a breakthrough cancer drug because his family was riddled with cancer and like he'd lost, you know, multiple family members, siblings to cancer, the whole bit. It's like his passion and purpose and almost lost me to it. And like, you know, all these other pieces. And yet he got in there and realized it has no desire to change the outcomes. There is no Impetus to change these outcomes because there's a lot of really good-hearted people like himself that were in there that really went in to try and change it, but it becomes very evident over time that it's really stacked against you to do so, and so that was really unfortunate. We both are passionate um, scientists and researchers, but we also recognize there's a lot of things on this planet we just don't know.
0: The like, more I've learned, it. the more that becomes really apparent. Exactly. When I barely knew anything, I thought I knew everything, and now. I know. I don't know shit about a lot of different subjects that I used to think I was an expert in physiology being one of them. Did you see that image that came out in the last couple of weeks of the cell?
1: Yep, Stunning.
0: We're trying to act like we understand how all these things work. Like it's so arrogant and ridiculous. And the
1: coolest thing is I am comfortable, completely comfortable in the unknown. Mm -hmm. I am completely comfortable in the magic. You know, I'm completely comfortable in the Let's keep exploring. It all just be,
0: is magic. Like that's it.
1: In my life, I'm always gray. I'm always shades of that. Of When people ask me, well, what do you do for this? I'm like, well, it depends. It's always, it depends because it's an N of one and it's changeable. It's dynamic. It's not set in stone. Mm-hmm. So what saved my butt 30 years ago, if I had it all to get today, it probably wouldn't do anything for me today. Like that's the thing I had to learn to recognize for myself and working with patients. That's also why I was very, very um, private about my diagnosis Until about 2012, I started talking about it a little bit more to the urgings of a few colleagues that were like, I don't know if you or your listeners have ever heard of David Servan Schreiber. And maybe in the mental health world you have, because he was the famous French researcher who recognized that fish oil was far more effective for antidepression than a serotonin uptake inhibitor. So his research was pretty world renowned. Well, he also became very world renowned with the fact that he was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor, glioblastoma multiforma, that has a typical lifespan of no more than 18 months with treatment. Okay. He had managed to survive 17 years with a GBM and had had three recurrences and three operations and treatments and was still here. He was a miracle upon miracle upon miracle. He wrote a book called the anti-cancer diet. What shifted things for me was when his book came out, I can't remember what year he died. Now we can probably go find this, but he ended up dying of his brain tumor. 17 years after its original diagnosis and the book he published post-mortem was called not the last goodbye. And it still just brings me so much emotion because he was afraid. Like he, nobody knew he had a recurrent, nobody knew what was going on. He was so afraid he wrote about it so beautifully in his book. He's like, all my work will be thought it was bullshit. If I die now, And we're be like, see, look, he died of cancer. And I totally resonated with that because the fact that he was still 17 years out of a GBM was a miracle enough
0: uh, that's like the most hostile cancer there is pretty much.
1: Totally. Like, and so he was yeah. like, people would take all my work and just say, oops, he didn't work.
0: He could have lived 50 years with it and they would have said the same thing.
1: And that's just it. And it was in that yeah. moment that I realized I have to let go of this.
0: Yeah. It doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter. Yeah. I could have died three months into it and they would have you know, said whatever, and I could have died 30 years into it and they could say whatever, it doesn't matter. That's exactly Mm -hmm. it. And so that's where I started becoming more of, I'm willing to share some of these experiences. And the caveat is there is no one way we have to explore our own process of what got us here and what is going to get us out of here. And that's what I totally live for now. Like you moving into this arena of the mental health piece, I want to know the biography to understand the biology and the biography is, you know, yes, I want the labs and I want to know the zip code and what they're exposed to in the environment. And I want to know their, like, I want to know those, but I really want to know their life story and significant life events. So I request that, you know, information when I'm working with some because we can find those little buttons
0: mm-hmm. that
1: pushed, you know, Everybody has them
0: like, Everybody. I've yet to run into anybody with any sort of significant chronic illness or disease process that doesn't have buttons as you phrased it. Like they'll be there and, um, and they usually know what they are too. And
1: if they didn't like for me, like I knew, but I didn't know, you know, you still like, you see them. Mm -hmm. It's always intriguing to me. I reviewed a case of the doctor recently who the guy tells me every tiny detail of his life. It's like this Unbelievable detailed. He neglected to tell me that he had a child that just came out as transgendering. And he neglected to tell me about um, a prostate cancer he'd had several years before where he had a prostatectomy and lost his sexual function. Those are pretty big situations. Oh, the third one was that his daughter was like born like at 20 weeks, you know, like super premature, should have died, like all the things. And here really dramatic. And then 20 years later, she's coming out transgender. So these big chunks of his life that he neglected to share. It was like, wow, even the not telling of the story is where the story lies. And so those are the things that um, I love what you're creating because we don't give space for this in our culture. And if we do, we kind of placate it. We sort of like, oh, just go get some therapy or go meditate or, you know, go take a little bit of low dose psilocybin or what, like we just, we wanna quickly push it out of the room. We don't wanna sit in, I call it sitting in the poopy diaper.
0: Yeah, go eat some so chocolate there. or buy some shoes or do some, like when you when you really look at it, our whole culture is designed around that, like the economy, like the, the things you're supposed to buy. Right? Like, do this to be happy. Grief is a powerful thing. And last summer, almost a year ago, it'll be a year on May 1st. um, I had a dog for 13 and a half years that basically saved my life like five times. And um, he died last year. And I leaned into it. Like, for two weeks, we just cried. And I started reading books. We read books on grief and, like, really being in the grief and in the books one of the books that laid out that like in western culture in our culture the first thing most people do if someone near them is grieving is like try to cheer them up try to change their mind try to you know or it's been a month you should be okay now or this should be fine or whatever and it's not because you want them to feel better it's because that makes you uncomfortable that they're sad Or like that they're feeling poopy, you know, and this whole culture is totally designed around like dodging this whole really important uh, thing. And it used to be like a community thing, grief, you'd have the support and and even not just grief, but like the poopy diaper, like the rest of the stuff, any other negative thing in this culture is like, go do that. Look at this, buy this, touch it. And everybody around you is going to be like, cheer up, do this, do it. And, and we don't learn how to be with it and be in it. And like, that it's okay, like that it's, and it's just, it's so clear once you see it, that it's all a sham. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there, but I I felt that was valuable.
1: It's a perfect tangent because what you just spoke to was we've designed a world around us that is constantly trying to protect us from the very thing that can heal us.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: In in, um, Sanskrit, grief means guru, which is teacher. Mm -hmm which I think is very interesting. And to your point, it's like we, we even hide death, we hide messy, we hide uncomfortable. You know, we're, we're right now dealing with a world where in the United States, our survival rate is going down compared to everywhere else in the world. Our longevity is now going lower for the first time in human existence, where everybody else is either holding their own or improving. And what researchers call this is they call it the era of despair. And the two things taking our lives are opiates and suicide. Both of those are exit strategies to the intolerable. And I get it, as do you, and I'm sure most of your listeners, because I also, I spent an an enormous amount of my life trying to escape the intolerable.
0: And me too, in a lot of different ways. You get really creative,
1: (laughs) I was going to say, you, you remove some mistake. of them
0: and you realize you're doing another thing. And then you remove that exactly. thing and you're doing another thing. And you're just like, exactly. holy shit, there's endless exactly. layers of exactly. things. But yeah, I've spent probably a total of five, 10 years of my life fully suicidal and like uh, attempted it when I was 17. And there's nobody in our culture anymore that's not touched by it in some way. No, exactly.
1: Yeah. And I want to just like acknowledge that and thank you for choosing to stay and lean into that because not everybody will choose that. And it's okay. What people choose. Like I want, I don't want that to be a thing either. People will nah. ultimately do what they need to do, but the harder choice is to stay. It, it just is because you don't know what it's going to look like and feel like after, because the seduction of the pain being gone immediately is so strong.
0: Yeah,
1: It's all consuming. And I understand all the time why someone makes that choice all the time. I have zero doubts why someone would make that choice.
0: Addicts too. Like I
1: 100%. totally get it.
0: A lot of my good friends are recovered addicts are still struggling. And it's yeah. it's no judgment. It's, it's, I totally get it.
1: And 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 that's what we don't talk about. We don't talk about that of of that piece and what you're creating with this next phase of like having a resource for people to start to find out where is the entry point where's their relighting of the pilot light that gets them curious about their own healing or their own wound or their own discomfort or their own intolerability? And what is the best fitting support for that? Like what you're getting ready to create here doesn't exist really in this world. And to watch what's happening in the world, we are becoming even more and more and more and more and more disconnected when we're more connected than ever before in so many other ways. And yet what the whole world of connection shows us today is just an opportunity for a bigger facade, a bigger mask,
0: more venues for the mask.
1: Exactly. And so I just think it's really an interesting time. And so like bringing this all full circle of what this journey has been like for me in my own healthcare the last few years, it's like in the last 30 years, but really even in the last few years, I feel like I haven't really started to get my handle on it until about 10 years ago. So I think when they see me now, like, I think they think it was just very linear and in in a moment, and yet I'm still on the journey. And I love those kind of memes. They're like, this is what we think healing should be like, but here's the reality.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's incredibly true. Like I'm trying to, that's one of the main points I'm trying to get across with the podcast actually is like, this is not linear. And The conversations I'm having now are with people who are way closer to the tail end. And now everybody's in a good place right now. And they've been through this healing journey. And the the thing that they dealt with is in the past. And keep that in mind as well, (laughs) that we're speaking from a place that isn't in it. We talked before we went on air that like, if you're in it, like we see you. In it is messy and it's squiggly and it's ups and downs and it's not linear. And you're going to have a crappy day and be like, this is all going sideways. And then the next day, it'll be great being present in the journey. Is where the magic's at. This went in a totally different direction than I had anticipated, but it's been awesome. I just want to know, like, one one last question is when you saw the acupuncturist and you did the EMDR and you had the insane dose of psilocybin and you had access to that place that was running scans for you and tests and things while you're doing your schoolwork. At some point, you started to get reports that the tumor was shrinking or the lesions were going away or that you maybe were accidentally going to live. At What point did that flip where you realized like, I'm actually going to survive this maybe, or somebody gave you a diagnosis that wasn't terminal? So
1: here's where it gets weird. I've never had someone give me a diagnosis that's not terminal. 1999 was the last time I did a scan because I also shut down my kidneys from the contrast dye. Gadolinium was what I used. memorized in the first few years, shut down my kidneys, Started getting some CTs and then started learning about the radiation components of that. It was also when we started understanding that um, BRCA gene and radiation prior aren't good friends. It, It really kicks it up more. So I stopped scanning. I started doing thermography, vaginal ultrasounds, blood work regularly from that point on the last imaging I had still showed lesions in my liver still shows peritoneal implants, basically lymph nodes all throughout my abdomen and groin still shows a small, very encased. It was huge. It was the size of a grapefruit. It's now, or was, I haven't looked at imaging for a long time, but I don't palpate it as much anymore. Um, But it got down to about the size of a walnut lesion in my right ovary. I get pretty good lymphedema to this day. Um, My kidneys are very vulnerable to any changes. So if I eat something wrong or whatnot, I will go into kidney failure pretty easily. So I deal with a lot of lymphedema ongoing. Um, I monitor myself with labs annually, more so if I'm feeling symptomatic at all, I would never say that I'm cured. I think that we all have cancer all the time. I don't aim for a cure. I don't expect a cure for anybody in any situation. I expect that this is a lifelong manageable disease process and it's become my inner compass. It's become my teacher, my messenger that lets me know you're not taking care of yourself. What are you denying? Where did you become disconnected? Where's the truth? Where's not the truth, et cetera. And so I've had these experiences with this many times throughout. Um, I had a pretty scary bout in 1999 when my liver became massively enlarged. And because my colleagues at school didn't know what was going on, only had a handful of people who knew my history. They were all like running around trying to guess what my diagnosis was. You know, I felt like kind of a, I felt a little weird at that time because I was already alive, but I knew what was going on. The liver mets was on the go, but I dealt with a very stressful rageful year that year. And I no surprise that it decided my liver was the place to flare it up. that's the encompassing organ of anger and yeah. rage. Um, but it was just like, these are just examples of looking at this over time. So as far as someone telling me, you know, you're good to go. I, it, I don't like stop. It's not like I get through a treatment and ring a bell and then life is back to normal again. In fact, I tell people when you, if you do go through standard of care and you get down and you ring that bell after chemo or radiation or whatever, you're actually just getting started.
0: There's a new way to live now.
1: You just got yourself out of harm's way. It took me a good, you know, decade to stabilize it and almost another decade more to get to the point where I felt like I was pushing it back to any degree. And in the last decade, I feel like I've just been living beautifully with it. And my health has improved every decade since, which is crazy. My labs look gorgeous, right? It's like the funny things that you see now and the types of things I've done all along. I mean, there's been thousands of things I've tried, hundreds of diets and supplements and IVs and different therapies. I've even considered going and having surgery, but I've since learned for certain things in my body that probably wouldn't be a good idea. I have problems with anesthesia. I have problems with certain medications. So I'm like learning now things about myself that makes me be a lot more aware of how to handle this in the future. If it got on the run again, I have a lot of better ideas of what I would do that I would probably still not go completely standard. I would go to places where I can get very low doses of things based on my tissue assays with certain like local treatments, intratumoral injections. I still use things like mistletoe today. I bring this up to you guys and that it's just an ongoing living learning laboratory that I'm inhabiting here. Like you said before, it's not linear. And so I want people to hear that in my way is not what somebody else with a similar diagnosis should be doing. Um, And we've come so far in the last three decades that we have the ability now to really know where someone is, how and why they got there, and what is likely the better way to take them out of this. It is not being offered in our standard of care. And that's what I get to do today is help people learn how to apply that and help people start to become aware of their blind spots and start to invoke that curiosity that I think saved my life all of those years ago.
0: That's an incredible perspective. And I didn't even know that cancer was like that. Like I know everybody has cancer cells and I know that people hate hearing that, but it's true. Uh, And that they'll grow out of control in certain environments and conditions with certain situations. But I didn't know that it was possible Cause you named like lesions here, uh, tumor here. Like, it's not like you have one little thing. Like there's quite a bit on your last scan. I didn't know it was possible for someone to be healthy and live like a healthy, vibrant life. Like if you went to an oncologist and they looked at all of that, they would be like, Oh, you have a bunch of cancer. And you'd be like, cool. I feel great. Thanks for yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> my labs are awesome. Look at this. And I didn't know it was like that. I really had no idea that shifted my whole perspective on it. Cause I told you before we went on that like cancer was always too scary to me. And I'm trained in some labs. I've been through FDN training and I know how to do some lab testing. So like, I was like borderline functional medicine, what I was doing. I just can't say that. But, uh, <laughs> if somebody had cancer or even a history of cancer, Um, I didn't work with them because I was like, I don't want to be responsible for this person dying. One, I wouldn't have been (laughs) like (laughs) one. It's not my responsibility, but two, like that changes, like that makes it less scary to me. It wasn't like they were coming to me to be an oncologist for them. They were working with an oncologist or a doctor, like doctors and things. They just wanted somebody to help them with like their health coaching, nutrition type stuff. I was still too scared. I just was like, Nope, those people over there will help you. I know good people for that.
1: And you're right that it is something that some people are terrified to work with. Mm -hmm. And what I try to explain to people is I don't treat cancer. I treat people that happen to have cancer and I focus on their terrain and I focus on the terrain of all the drops in the bucket that have accumulated in that terrain that has led to a cancer ring process. Cancer to me is a dynamic process. And when you're cancer ring, it's active. Having cancer, like
0: ing like a verb?
1: Exactly. Uh, it's the thing, right? And so we have w- ways to help people understand like cancering is one thing. having cancer is another. And so helping people understand that, helping people explore that, having people, like you said, like to realize that this really is a maintainable disease process. And that's where the future of oncology is going, which is super exciting to me. And that there are many conventional oncologists out there saying the very things I'm telling you right now. Just trying to kill, kill, kill. Yeah. They're like realizing, you know, what we're learning now is we can actually turn this into a maintainable disease process that people can live very well with cancer for many, many years and likely die of something totally different, not related to cancer. So my goal is to help people die. You know, first of all, we're all going to die. We are going to all get there, but will you die of the condition? you don't have to i mean that's what's really beautiful is we've come to this point where we can certainly increase people's quality of life now we can certainly um like help outcomes and help support the body you know going through standard of care with other therapies that help their quality of life and their side effects we can also help um, bring on therapies that help people have less drug resistance and less toxicity etc it's, it's come so far, but what's really shifting is the idea that this is now a manageable disease process, much like we treat diabetes or heart disease. Yeah.
0: yeah you know. I'd never looked at it like that. Yeah. It, it yeah. that changes my perspective quite a bit. So yeah, no, I'm not scared <laughs> of it as much. I think part of it is my, my grandmother, who was my only grandparent that I was ever close with died of breast cancer when I was small, when I was like eight, and the way it was handled in the family was like a secretive thing and then a like scary thing. And then she was bald and she came to Christmas and she looked really sick and then she died. And I was like small enough that we were kind of kept out of the loop. I think I was seven or eight. And then one day she was just dead and gone. And so to me, like it was always the thing that killed my grandma that like kills everyone, like it anyone who gets it dies. Like that was my understanding as a child. So I think that played a role in my own fears. Uh around it but um
1: huge yeah it's and that yeah. I think is actually that story is likely kind of the cultural story we've created around it as well there's
0: like a mourning process if somebody gets diagnosed with cancer like it's like a oh
1: yeah we've already buried you but that's where we yeah. go psychologically mm-hmm.
0: things yeah. are getting better and, and you're a huge part of it and thank oh. you for for that. And I know that now you're training doctors and and training a lot of practitioners and you've trained a lot of practitioners. And it seems to me that like there's a tide that's turning a little bit and that it's a situation that is having more positive outcomes in in many ways. And that the conventional thinking is shifting and that we all know how long that takes to happen. And so good job guys. Way (laughs) to... catch up a little bit but uh, because it's about 20 years behind the research usually. Thank you so much for everything you've shared here, for what you're doing, for what you're going to do. I noticed that it totally shifts my whole perspective and it's good to know that that's happening out there and that there's more doctors learning and I know doctors who you have trained and so I now feel safer myself and in my own personal network because I know where I'm going to send people. if this is to come up in, in my world and it feels a little bit safer knowing that, that it's out there yeah. and that the way you're creating, in which I wanted to talk about, but we'll, we'll talk again. We need to do more of this. So thank you. I'm really glad that we crossed paths and, and I look forward to doing more of this and collaborating more. So thank you so much.
1: Wow. Thank you, Michael. Absolute, absolute privilege. Thank you.
0: This was great. Thank you so much
1: my friend. Take good care.
0: Ciao. All right. Bye. And this brings us to the end of today's journey. Head on over to rebelhealthtribe.com backslash podcast to grab a free download of our loaded quick start guide. It contains dozens of our favorite tips, suggestions, recommendations, and tools to help you along your healing journey. If you're on Facebook, come join our rebel health tribe group over there. And finally, if you like the show, please subscribe, leave us a review and share with your friends. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.